It might start as a faint rustling, like the dry wings of desiccated insects. Then the sound will break open into minute bursts of crackling and spitting as tiny bolts of static electricity jump between the hairs in your ears. The rustling and hissing will increase in volume and you'll see a faint line appear on the horizon. It will be hot, so very hot. Over 40 degrees Celsius and rising. Even the cold, dry front that has triggered the wind that drives these sounds towards you has no power to reduce the temperature. You are baking. Your lungs are burning with every breath. Your throat is constricted and it's impossible to swallow. It's as if every molecule of water is being sucked from your body. An oncoming wind can be felt, so fierce and sudden that it seems like someone has opened the door of a gigantic oven. The moisture dries on the surface of your eyes, and you'll have to keep blinking in order to see anything. And what you see is a ragged, curling wall of yellow bearing steadily down on you. It's too fast to outrun, and too high to fly over even if you had a plane. You don't have a plane. You are standing alone in the desert, watching the dust cloud approach. The cloud is now a rolling wall. It bisects the world and extends as far as you can see. It's shaggy with heated particles, fine grains that will fill and clog your ears and nose. They will fly into your mouth and you will feel them crunch minutely between your teeth. Now it's upon you. It reaches down with gigantic curving fingers that seem to rake the ground. The burning wind thunders in your ears and lightning walks jerkily along the cloud front as massive amounts of static discharge into the earth. At these temperatures your body will dehydrate swiftly. Without water, you'll start to die very quickly. The dust envelops you, suffocating you. You take a breath to scream and the hot dust slams into your throat and packs your lungs. The Sky Machine by Martin Liddermont Performed by Jennifer Bardsley and Martin Liddermont Chapter 7 A Small Amphibian The light came on. I was lying on a bed in a medium-sized room. The room had dark blue curtains and pale blue walls. I had no memory of how I had got there. There was a wardrobe to my right, a chest beneath the window, and a dressing table against the wall to my left. I sat up slowly and looked for the door. It was there beside the wardrobe. It looked like a normal internal door from a normal house or hotel. 
No obvious locks, no bolts or chains. I swung my legs out of the bed and stood up barefooted on the mottled grey carpet. It felt deep and new. The air was very hot, blistering, insanely hot. My mouth was bone dry. There was a slight scent in the air. Sandalwood. My clothes were folded neatly on the chest. I got dressed quickly, sweat pouring from me, and pulled the curtains apart. A set of windows faced mine. They were all reflective. The building they were in was very close. It might even be a wing of the one I now occupied. I tried to look down and sideways and then up, but the view was blocked by walls. I didn't expect the door would open, but it did. Outside was a short white painted corridor with another door at the end. I looked closely, but I couldn't see any cameras anywhere on the walls or ceiling. The same grey carpet ran the length of the corridor. I padded quietly along it and opened the end door. The effect was immediately disorientating. I stood for a long moment. I was in the doorway of a modern office reception area. A curved desk faced me, with a young man sitting behind it. He was wearing a light headset and was immaculately groomed. Soft leather seating lined the walls. Tall windows gave me the view that I couldn't get from the bedroom. A cityscape on a brilliantly sunny afternoon. I could see anonymous skyscrapers quite close. Architecturally it could have been anywhere, but the heat said it should be some place near the equator. Singapore? Nairobi? Maybe Kuala Lumpur? How the hell had I been transported that far? Behind the reception desk, glass walls revealed a long office, with expensive-looking workstations scattered around it. Men and women sat working. Staff passed up and down the aisles. There was an expensive-looking drinks machine in a small, well-fitted kitchen area. The office had breakout rooms and booths along the far end. Individual glass-fronted rooms along the left-hand side. It could easily have been the headquarters of a consultancy, a computer software company, or a firm of solicitors. It could have been anywhere. Please take a seat, said the receptionist. Perfect English accent. He'll be with you in a moment. There seemed to be no other doors apart from the one that still stood open behind me. I turned and looked down the corridor. I could see the bedroom door ajar at the end, the blue walls clearly visible. I turned back. Who will be with me? I asked. The receptionist smiled. His whole body and being seemed to relax into that smile. Please take a seat. I shook my head and remained standing and perspiring. If there was another door, it was well hidden somewhere deeper in the office. I considered just walking past the glass partition and searching for it, but despite the apparent normality of the place, I doubted I would get very far. The receptionist didn't speak again, but he watched me. 
After a few minutes, a middle-aged man in a dark three-piece suit emerged from one of the smaller offices and strode into reception. He had short hair, wore a bright red silk tie, and as he put out his hand to shake mine, I could see he had a gold bracelet round his right wrist. I thought that he smelled of sandalwood too. Sorry to keep you waiting, he said. Please? It was an invitation by word and gesture to follow him. For a second I was reminded of the guard in my room at the Zero Hour Conference in Helsinki all those weeks before. I walked behind him into the long office. No one paid me any attention. I wondered how they could work so quietly and efficiently in such heat. The soft murmur of busy people was all around me. We sat in wide, low chairs with a small circular table between us. A large monitor dominated one wall. It was unpowered. An indoor plant lived in a corner bent over towards us. There was a desk set diagonally across the room and a large black executive chair. A closed laptop sat on the desk. There were no pictures anywhere. He had left the door open behind us, I noticed. I won't introduce myself, he said, reaching out and pouring me a glass of iced water from a jug that had been set on the table. And you don't need to introduce yourself, Dr. Forrester. My mouth and throat were parched. I sipped the water, watching him. So this is what needs to happen, he said pleasantly. You need to tell me everything that you have found out. I have absolutely no idea what you mean, I said, slowly shaking my head and never taking my eyes from his. He got up and walked over to the circular table and sat down in front of the laptop. He leaned back in that black executive chair just a little. People generally don't expect this, he said, nodding towards the open plan office. I blame the entertainment industry and the media. My guests anticipate anything from a white tiled room with drainage channels in the floor to some sort of brick box with a wooden chair and electrodes, or maybe a slightly tilted board, a towel and a pail of water. <sighs> nowhere, he sighed. We would get nowhere if we worked like that. Come on now, tell me about your adventures. I don't have adventures, I replied. I lead a boring, uneventful life as an underpaid researcher and occasional lecturer. Oh, I know you do all that, he said, but you seem to have branched out recently. Now don't get me wrong, I admire innovation and it's good to be open to new ideas and experiences. One should always keep learning. But I'm afraid you may have recently been learning about the wrong kinds of thing. Intellectually speaking, you have gone off-piste, Dr. Forrester. I shook my head again. Then I coughed. The air was heavy and the smell of sandalwood seemed much stronger. More water? He refilled my glass. Where's Susan? I asked. There was no point in pretending I didn't know her, but he still managed to look genuinely puzzled. Susan, he said. I'm sorry, I don't know a Susan. Is she someone special to you? You know who she is, I said. You know all about us. You have been following us, tailing us for days, ever since Helsinki. You, or rather one of your men, attempted to kill us in Kipera, and you have been trying to frighten us ever since. I stopped 
because my head was swimming with the heat and the stress. Dr. Forrester, he said reasonably, now I have no idea what you are talking about. These are wild accusations. I fear you're not yourself. Just who the fuck are you? Hellazen? Is that it? I shouted and coughed uncontrollably. He watched me without expression and then poured more water into my glass. I started to reach for it, but it was hard to pull myself upright from the slightly reclined chair. I tried again. My back seemed to have locked, and my arm ached. He looked at me solicitously. Are you having some difficulty? he asked. He sounded concerned. Perhaps we could make you a bit more comfortable. In the open plan, two women got up from their desks. One was tall, and one slightly built. They came straight into the room without a word. The tall woman put her hands under my armpits and lifted me, settling me back into the chair. The other woman put my feet flat on the floor and my hands on my knees. I tried to stop them, but my limbs felt as though they were unconnected mechanisms. The women went back out and returned with a portable blood pressure cuff which they strapped round my arm and then activated. The smaller woman clipped a SATS monitor to my fingertip. As the cuff hissed and deflated, the tall one checked the readings and nodded to the man. He tapped some keys on his laptop and studied the screen. What have you done? I asked. It wasn't a gasp. My voice was working normally. I could swallow. But as for the rest of me, I'd become numb from the shoulders down. I haven't done anything, he said. You drank the water. He leaned forwards his eyes bright. He put a small clear plastic pill cup on the table in front of me. It held one white tablet. You have a choice, he said. Talk now and you can take this. It will give you back control over your body, but more importantly, it will stop the onset of the pain. He paused and waited. I stayed quiet. Internally, I was terrified. I looked down to see if I was breathing. My chest was moving, but I couldn't feel it. He wouldn't credit it, would you, he mused. A small amphibian the size of my thumbnail gave us the substance we're using. We had to modify some of the peptide bonds so that we could get the toxin to stay effective when dissolved in water. We thought it might be difficult to get our guests to chew on a frog. Worked quickly, didn't it? We can delay the onset of the paralysis if we wish to by quite a considerable amount, which makes for some amusing possibilities. There are other advantages. No mess, for one thing. No expensive carpet cleaning bills. I think you'll find it interesting to know that one of our researchers is writing a paper on why the vocal cords aren't affected. We believe that it's so the prey can scream when the pain really kicks in. The frogs themselves don't have much of a voice, but they hear the animal howl when it falls into their pool. Or maybe it's their river or pond I can't remember anyway the little fellows come hopping from miles around ready for when the victim's flesh starts to liquefy and fall off the bones they treat it like consomme apparently slurp it up fuck you I gasped he didn't seem bothered he looked at his laptop screen again and held a finger poised over the keyboard now I have to ask you if you have any objections to me recording our conversation, he said. 
It's just that appeal judges these days seem to care more about such things than the bloody crimes the perpetrators commit. We find ourselves wasting time on questions about excessive data collection and whether we have assumed consent rather than obtained it explicitly. He paused. Joke, he said. I tried to yell another obscenity at him, but a surge of agonising pain swept through me. Every part of me felt as though it had been stabbed by something white-hot. My body, no longer under my control, should have gone into spasms in the chair, arcing as though I'd been electrocuted, but it didn't move. All that happened was that I screamed for quite some time. He waited until I stopped, then he sighed. If your muscles had contracted with pain, he said, they might have splintered your bones and strangled your circulation, but history tells us that there may be future inquiries and repercussions. We like to be reasonably careful. The pain had lessened and my head had fallen forwards. He reached over and put his hand under my chin and tilted it up so he could see my eyes. Now listen to me, Dr. Forrester. The pain will come in waves, giving us an opportunity to talk for a few minutes between onsets. The intensity will increase, and the frequency of the attacks as well, until your heart gives up. I would much rather we avoid that outcome, for all sorts of reasons. So please tell me, what do you know? I know that it's real, I gasped. I thought it was a conspiracy theory, but it's true, isn't it? You mad bastards are really doing it. He looked at his watch. Very good, Dr. Forrester, he said. You have a few more minutes before the next hit. Please continue. You don't need to do this, I spat. Why wouldn't I tell you if you have Susan? Why have you poisoned me? Keep to the point, he warned. You have just a couple of minutes now. So I sobbed it out. All the main events from the past week. I didn't get to the finish before the pain tore through me again, and he was right. It was intolerable. I passed out, and came round to feel the tall woman gently slapping my face. The other was checking my pulse. Your conclusion, he said, looking up from his laptop. What? I asked. I could hardly think. The room was spinning slowly and I couldn't focus on anything. What I knew was that I had to tell this person everything about our suspicions and half-theories, or he would kill me. <sighs> what did it matter? We'd proved nothing. All we had done was run before the storm. I might as well tell him. It was speculation. He and whatever government he represented, whatever company he represented, they could do what they wanted with it. Your conclusion, please, he repeated. As a scientist, I need your final opinion. You, whoever you are, you might be working for the Russians or the Americans, I don't know. The whole fucking idea of a river in the troposphere looks like it might be fact. The Chinese may really be seeding the clouds over Tibet with silver iodine or coordinating their dam building so it causes the monsoons to fail in India. Christ, I don't know. Russia could be heating the ionosphere to fuck over Washington with tornadoes. I don't know. All I know is that enough people looked at something that you think proves this shit is happening and it's frightened you sufficiently to do this to us. That's all I know. That's all I can think of. Please. He clicked his laptop shut and stood up. Good man, he said, and nodded to the women. One of them got the pill and the other held my mouth open. 
and I managed to swallow the little tablet. Then everything was red fuzziness, and the dark followed. This time when I woke, I was lying on a plastic sheet on top of a pile of oily rags in a garage. I was sure that whoever did this to me, that they were outside. I heard movement. I thought, okay, there's nothing now for me but being bundled into a car and driven where? Maybe to a riverbank or out to sea and then disposed of. Even then, it's been an opportunity to get my thoughts into some sort of order and to arrange the narrative, if only for myself. There were things I had to make sense of. Yes, I believe I had some of the answers. Not all, not by any means, but some. The door was pushed up, grating. The first thing I saw was her green jacket. Oh, David, cried Susan Lystrammer, rushing towards me. Are you all right? What did they do to you, David? I'm so sorry. The Sky Machine is written and produced by Martin Liddermont. Performed by Jennifer Bardsley and Martin Liddermont. Music by Purple Planet Music, Daniel Birch and the Pangolins. Additional sounds by Seboroyo on freesound.org. <laughs> <laughs>